You work? Uh, I no longer work. Sounds like a great idea. A conventional job. Uh -huh. Carrie was convincing me for seven years to... Go for it. I finally did. Last year. Last year. Yeah, yeah. I've been out of employment for a little more than a year. Is it good results for you? Oh, it's just, it's such a blessing. Yeah. I read, I study. And yeah. The garden couldn't be happier. Rather than be driven by this crazy society. Well, that's still happening, but <laughs> it's, it's pretty tough. Yeah. There's, There's so much. You know, I keep thinking about the wonderful chance that remind us not to have ill will. Mm -hmm. you know? And that's helpful. Because there's a lot of evil in the world and just and it's how how do you hold that? Yeah. Part partially is be very careful who you hang out with. True. That's a big part. What you read. Look where I am. <laughs> Yeah. What information you take in. Yeah. And then when you're with people who are bad news, be very careful. Yeah. Don't try to get drawn in. It's yeah. A lot of a lot of right livelihood or right living is sense restraint. Yeah. And it's not just a kind of moral question. It's more like a toxic question. Mm. You know, that you don't get drawn into the energies of yeah. discord. And that, takes, oh, that takes a kind of restraint of the senses. Yeah. Because you can get really fascinated by the stupidity of the world. <laughs> right? And what did he do again? Yeah, exactly. And what did she do? And, what did he uh, you know, say? The, the mind likes to be shocked. Yeah. Yeah, it likes the kind of extremes. Mm. Peace is very boring. Mm. Peace, people don't like peace. It, you, know, <laughs> you know, like ten minutes of not being... Um, shocked by something. <laughs> yeah. Drama. Yeah. Drama, yeah, yeah, yeah. And our culture is very good at that. Yeah. It's been a blessing. We travel quite a bit. And, uh -huh. and when you travel, phones are off and off. Yes. There's no TV. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No newspapers. And it's. You're not in touch with all that nonsense. And you really see how the mind cleans out. Mm -hmm. You know, from that. What you got? Yeah. We have choices, do we? We have caffeine free. You been out in the boat? Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. A little bit anyway. Yeah. yeah. You have to wear the skirt now. Oh, I haven't been out on the on the kayak? In the kayak, no, uh -huh. I've just been walking. Uh -huh. <clears throat> we have a skirt for the kayak, by the way. Oh, okay. So if you want to mention. I went out. If you wear, if you wear a shell and a skirt, you can stay pretty dry. Mm. Before it freezes. <laughs> <laughs> it's a beautiful lake. Isn't it? It's pretty I, large. It's six kilometers long. Mm. So where you're, you're looking out to the width of it. Mm. And the other side of the, <coughs> the lake is the Westport Road that goes down to Kingston. Mm. And that's an all-weather all road. So a lot of the houses on that side are four-season. Okay. On our side, like here, this, we have to maintain this road ourselves. It's not a county road. Mm. So there's only one. There's only four permanent, four season residences down there. The rest are just summertime or mm -hmm. three seasons. Uh, how many dwellings came with the property? Was it two. two well, two in that red kind of construction. Because yeah. mm -hmm. when you went on the left, there was a piece of land too. Yeah. I didn't indicate that's ours too. Mm -hmm. it, it had a number. What's the number? Yeah. 159. 150, how much? 159. Yeah. 159, yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a bit moldy, so we haven't used it yet. Mm. Yeah, we just secured it and we just let it be mm. there for a while. We've got enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> Say the least.
Yeah, we're very fortunate. <coughs> How was your coup tea, Mark? Okay. Good enough? Yeah, uh, You have a... What have you got? You've got an electric heater. And that's warm enough? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay, Mia, where are you? I'm in the Sipskuti. Oh, great. Did you by any chance make that little pull-out desk that's in there? I think it's probably Pavaro. Oh, okay. He made something oh, for there. Mm -hmm. I haven't. Was that Pavaro's work? I think it's Pavaro. I yeah. Think Pavaro. Yeah. He's got a good eye. <coughs> Well, what should we consider? Anything? Burn, any burning issues or smoldering issues? Or <laughs> dying? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll ask a question mm -hmm. um, that I've been pondering quite a bit lately. <laughs> um, in meditation or in life, I have insights, many that are wonderful, and they seem bright and alive, uh, pretty transformative, but over time, and sometimes very quickly, they dissipate. Mm -hmm. And just how to sustain that. But another thing just happened recently where, so that I want to hold on to, to some degree. Recently, I had an insight in which I need to let something go that I've, and it's a long story, just something needs to, I need to let go of something. So there, there are sort of opposites here, maybe. Well, both are insights. Yeah. Both are some sense of understanding, right? Yeah, yeah, and one, like, you know, in some you feel so uplifted, in this one I actually feel very heavy. Uh -huh. And I wish I could feel more light, but I don't feel light yet. So just, you know, how you work with well, some, some things are, are just conclusions that make us feel confident, mm. right? And that's a good feeling. So I make some kind of intellectual connection and I make a conclusion and that's, okay, I feel good. And then when doubt comes up, I don't feel good. So those are quite often not insights as of what we mean, uh, more just like logical conclusions about things that make sense and give us maybe some, some kind of confidence. Mm -hmm. But then we have the other of you know, not being sure and how does it work. So we bounce around between the two and um, we feel good with the conclusions, because that's inspiring, and we don't feel very good with the not being sure and not knowing. But both, both of those are still objects of mind, right? The conclusion is an object. Like if I, like I'm trying to, <laughs> to learn a CAD program right now, <laughs> my brain is too old for this. <laughs> but I'd like to design furniture, so I'm just challenging myself. So, you know, click, 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 oh, that works. Okay, that's a conclusion about something uh, in the objective world which is going to help me. Okay, so we have those kinds of uh, insights. That, um, but the kind of uh, insights into Dharma are things that I think um, begin to transform your world view. They're kind of more f fundamental. They're about how things are, how you relate to them, um, and what they entail is a, a constant uh, deepening of perspectives which you have kind of come to and become more and more deep. And what should be happening with them is that they are transformative, but in ways you might not notice right away. 
like just to say the kind of classic thing that when a person finally notices that thinking is an object, it's a lot of people don't see that. They just believe in their thinking. And then one day, well, you can be aware of thought. That's a huge change. But then the belief in thought is going to have a lot of power, whereas awakening to thought as an object has less power. So then the, those kind of insights, how do you how do you encourage them so that the kind of little seeds of wisdom that are there uh, become more dominant in your worldview? And that's where you use language that reminds you of the insight, but not language to try to regain an experience. The language of insight is not the desire to have an experience. The desire for experience is, I want to get that clarity again. I want to have that clarity again. That's desire, and, you, and that's a sense of self and time. Whereas, like, say, the insight that, just noticing that the that, uh, sense of self is a thought, the sense of person is a thought, and then reminding yourself, so maybe then you're caught up in some self-doubt, right? And, you, and, and then, oh yeah, but that's a thought. Self is a thought. So maybe you start to say that to yourself. Self is a thought. And you come back to that insight. And then you, your self-doubt churns up again and again and again. Self is a thought. Huh? So, so that's different than trying to get the experience of no self. Or It's not based on desire. It's based on understanding and insight. So your, you know, your question about letting go, okay, there is some insight, I would say, about what causes you suffering, right? And uh, maybe you realize how difficult this is. So it's not so encouraging. It's kind of, wow, I didn't realize it's going to be so hard. Um, and yet, if the insight is profound, you can't deny it anymore. You can't distract it or ignore it because it's kind of speaking to something deeper. And I think all of, all of us have, you know, you could, like maybe I've function from like say cynicism or something all my life and then one day I noticed wow I'm really cynical and oh I just you know I'm just really critical all the time or something like that my mind is always critical and from then on <coughs> I have this perspective that this habit of criticism is actually very painful it alienates me and da 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 and then I realized how difficult it is to extract myself from that. And it's kind of discouraging, but you have no choice. You know, your, 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 your search for freedom is saying, I'm sorry, you got yeah. to let go of that one, right? And then you often see, like, the initial insight is just the beginning of the work uh, in some areas. And, and, and you keep applying whatever language you can to awaken it, so maybe... It is a habit of, of cynicism or criticism that I get caught up into. And then I just say, oh, cynicism feels this way. And that's not a demand that I not be cynical. It's an awakening to cynicism. And I keep doing that. And I keep doing that until cynicism becomes so apparent as an object that I no longer grasp it. And when it comes up, the letting go is very easy. It might take 10 years, right? If it's been, it's been in, in my system for 20, 30 years, you don't know. But at least you have, a, you have an insight, and you have the work you have to do. Now, that work can quite often be perverted by the desire to get rid of. So you, you kind of have a, you have a sense of you know, the kind of things that obsess the mind and cause you suffering, and, and then you try to get rid of them. And that doesn't work. That doesn't work. So then, then that insight hasn't got the maturity of the path yet. You kind of understand that's where you get stuck but you quite don't know what letting go means. And you suffer some more by going to the other extreme of trying to get rid of it, trying to be a nice person, trying to be different. And then you find the middle way of awakening. And that's the basic insight of freedom, awakening to the way things are, and they're changing. So the basic insight that the Buddha recommended was that. And that's the one that's hard to apply. But if you keep applying that, that always takes you to transcendence and freedom. 
If, however, you're just trying to reformulate your emotional life, it, you can do some of that, but you'll still be um, limited by your emotional life. Whereas the awakened mind isn't limited by emotions, it knows emotions. So that's why it's the deepest freedom. Yeah? And it, it is, it's, uh, yeah, it's uh, disappointingly um, difficult. <laughs> and, and persistent. And, and, and childish and foolish. <laughs> Do you find that there's like a series of letting go, like you can let go for a while and then you, know, you tumble into it, crops, crops back up, and then okay, enough suffering maybe. <laughs> yeah, and and subtleties, you know, like going from uh, just like really, really being very shy and very fearful to just having a sense of dread. <laughs> an overall sense of dread. It's just sort of there as a, as a great cloud. So you get, you get subtleties of... of, of ins- you get, you have, usually, like, I think, it's greed, hatred, delusion, right? And then the subtleties of that, like, like the modes of fear, from, from a terror, a panic attack, to just the subtlety of not being quite secure. There's a whole range of things. And I think as you let go of the grosser ones, you see the more subtle ones, like maybe you're not angry anymore, but you're always maybe like just a bit putting people down somewhere, something like that. And they, as you get more and more aware, they have a lot. They have a lot of um, um, weight in them because now you're so aware. Whereas before, when you were not so aware. Uh, anger was it was it had a lot of weight, but these other things, well, you know, nothing. But now, because you're more more aware, more sensitive, more mindful, and more you've let go of a lot of stuff, these things are also unacceptable. Yeah? And you might make a big thing out of them, but actually, when you that's why it's good to go back. Well, ten years ago, I was really quite a difficult person. You know, this is pretty good. You gotta <laughs> help yourself that way. Nick Scott used to say, he said, his capacity for suffering is always 100%. <laughs> you know, he's, guy, he's always got a whole bunch of stuff, even though he's you know, worked on things. And you, 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 I don't think you have to pull anything out like, to transform yourself. You're just with the way things are. And you'll see things. Because it's also important to rest in goodness and, and rest in, in compassion and rest in ease rather than just be sort of trying to get in line or whatever. There has to be places of rest and, and, and ease. So it's so nature, right? Going for a walk or cooking or whatever people do. Making, um, what did you used to make? You used to make, uh, what was your great? Bread? No, 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 no. Cheesecakes. You used to make cheesecakes. <laughs> Ferocious cheesecakes. There's another one coming for... For, uh, <laughs> for Katina. <laughs> Uh, no, actually, for um, uh, Mudita's mom's. Oh, yeah, she's coming, isn't she? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, there are, yeah. So there's joy, too. There is the work of purification, but there's the joy of service, the joy of forgiveness, and the joy of uh, samadhi, many, many, creation. We need it all. But. It's a, a very important, I think, to, to observe that, like, the mind which is inspired by the confidence of, of knowledge and the mind which is um, yearning for... Uh, when you have doubt, you want to go beyond the doubt to clarity, which is natural. But the problem with that is that it quite often just limits you to intellectual understandings. And the intellect itself is a conditioned phenomenon, so it's not stable. So even though you might feel confidence, eventually that confidence will change to doubt. That's just its nature. That's the nature of thought. Whereas awareness of confidence and doubt is, is not conditioned by thought. Right? It's not dependent on thought. It's not dependent on conclusions. So awareness isn't a conclusion. It's an awakening. And that's why it's so different. That's why it's so very, very different. And, and yet, intellectually, because we're so conditioned to, to analyze and come to conclusions, and we do that well, we can do that well, we, we get limited to that. And so when we have doubt, 
we quite often seek a, an answer in thought. Whereas the awakened mind knows doubt as a, as, a, as, a, as a condition. And what we look at is the craving to not have the doubt, which is different than looking for a conclusion. So in some realms, conclusions are good. How big is this piece of wood? Can I use it for some furniture? Sure. But at a spiritual level, uh, the, the, we have to go beyond intellect, beyond thought. And that's where thought has its limits, and that's where you have to let go of thinking in doubt, in the very nature of doubt. You know, I don't know. And that's why in Buddhism you have the Zen tradition, or um, like in, in Chan, uh, who, uh, who am I? Or uh, uh, Sri Ramana, who am I? Or what is it? Or you have all this bringing forth of doubt. Because doubt's interesting. If you, if you bring up a question but don't look for an answer, your mind is silent. Like, what's the loudest sound you have now? And then your mind's attentive. It's interesting. But if you're addicted to thought, then you say, what's the loudest sound? Mm, it's the engine. But before you made that conclusion, the mind was attentive. And that's the, how, in, in the Sino-Buddhism, they, they used that a lot. Yeah. Who am I, the Watto, those kind of things. So understanding thought is, is obviously a big piece in the spiritual life. And then, then using thought from this more position of, of like reflective encouragement, I would say, like, um, uh, what does it feel like to doubt? And then you feel doubt. Right? But it's not looking, it's not analyzing anymore. It's using thought to apply the mind. Vitaka Vijara, we call it, you apply the mind. And then, or you use, you use thought to, to remember a, uh, an, a perspective. This will change. And then the mind is silent. Right? It's a whole different use of thought. You can't put an end to thinking by thinking. <laughs> That's a conclusion I had when I was a layman. I was in Amsterdam. Mine was, I was reading horribly difficult philosophy. And I'm not so smart on that stuff. So. <laughs> I'd read this really difficult philosophy, I couldn't understand it. And then I just felt more stupid. <laughs> but I didn't see that I was creating a problem myself. Right? So I, think, oh, I, have, to, I have to understand Kant or whatever it is. And I'll get this headache trying to figure this out. And then I wouldn't understand it, or I thought I just did not feel uh, inadequate. <laughs> I was just creating that. And I'm sitting in Amsterdam, and I think, you can't put an end to thinking by thinking. Because thought's always been obviously important for me to get beyond. That was quite an insight. I continued to think for many years, <laughs> but it was the beginning of the end. <laughs> Yeah. It's one of the first questions I asked Ajahn Chah. How do I put an end to thought? At least you don't make it a problem. These <laughs> are thinking's natural. It comes and it goes. See, it's changed. That was very helpful because I was trying to get rid of thought all the time. So he told me to back off and be more aware. Does that cover the kind of perspective you're talking about? Yeah. yeah. Helpful. It brings up, Carrie was reading something with Ajahn Chah just this afternoon, a story of some fortune teller who read his book oh, yeah. and said that he was full of anger. He said, wow. He said to Ajahn Chah, you are full of anger. You have a lot of anger. Yeah. I asked Lumpa uh, Liam about that. Because when you read Long Paul Liam's Enlightenment, I, 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 I pointed you to that, right? The um, No Worries book, Long Paul Liam, he talks about his Enlightenment experience. I'm not sure. I think I pointed to that. And that's really very, very inspiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and in it, he said there was nothing. There was no, nothing, right? So, and then you, you read that story about Jin Chah. Oh, you've got a lot of anger. Yeah, but I don't use it. Jin Chah says, I wanted to check out if that was true. 
Right? And why the difference? Why the difference in Lompo uh, Liam's seeming experience in Ajahn Chah's? Does that mean that Lompo Liam is more advanced than Lompo Liam? Or, you know, what's going on? Um, so I asked Lompo Liam, I told him that story, mm-hmm. and I told him what I had read uh, in his book. Mm-hmm. And he didn't answer. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect question. <laughs> he just, he just Lompa Liam often does that. He just doesn't answer. Mm-hmm. He doesn't feel compelled to answer. Mm-hmm. But it's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so silly. But I, I yeah, I, I pondered that yeah. quite a bit. But but I think when you and I can see that we, you know there can be the arising of anger. You don't invest anything in it. But the passage says, um, I give it nowhere to land. I think is how he said it. I don't think he said it that way, yeah, not from what I remember. But anyway, it's a translation from the Thai, and it's a related story, so you you wonder who who related to him, who saw it, how they they spoke it. It's hard to know. It's, It's anecdotal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but in in um, in the four uh, stages of holiness, as we say, um, the second stage, the the uh, once returner, the once returner, it, the there's just an uh, the translation in the Visuddhi Magga is there's an attenuation of greed and anger. Uh, but I think it's pointing probably more to hatred than anger. Mm-hmm. I think anger for me is like just the the the, the passion of a of a physical biological body. Yeah. That you know maybe if I'm attacked by a cougar, you know I'm not going to say nice pussy cat, right? Maybe I'll bash it in the face. Yeah. Whereas opposed to hatred, you know hatred to me is is a kind of toxic undercurrent. Which is different than anger. Anger can just explode. You know? So, and I, I was speaking about it the other night. Anger, which is from hatred, is is very frightening, very very frightening. So you wonder, like in in the way Ajahn Chah was asked that. Uh, I don't even know the difference between hatred and anger in in, in Thai. Don't mm-hmm. so they might use the Thai. Mm-hmm. But for you and I, we can see. Yeah, you can you can get annoyed at someone, but you don't really hate them. But if you have like a, a deep, you've been betrayed by someone, you have this deep lack of forgiveness around something, and so that's different. Mm-hmm. You know, that creates a strong sense of self. <clears throat> so sometimes we, you know, as Buddhists, we get very uptight because we got a bit annoyed or angry, but you know, if you're not hurting anyone with that, I don't think it's such a big deal. It's just you know, the nervous system likes to do that every now and then, as opposed to revenge lack of forgiveness, you know, hatred, those kind of things, they're, they're more problematic. Mm-hmm. Usually it's self-hatred that's a problem, isn't it? Mm-hmm. We just t- tyrannize ourselves and other <coughs> judgments. That's, that's what's really the problem. So you're reading the biography, are you? This um, big one, stillness flowing. Actually, that was in chapter eight. You told me to read chapter eight of the island. Well, that was in there too. That was in there. Oh, I see. That's what, and I was just reading that. Today. Ah, ah, I didn't know that. But you have the biography. The biography, yeah, do you? The biography yeah. It's in there too. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's in there too. But the reason I was reading that. The chapter is because I had asked you a question about vinyana. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So you went back to that. As, as one of the five aggregates. Right. <laughs> and you, you sent me to this chapter. To this one, yeah. I sent which, everyone to that one. Because I get that question a lot. Yeah, which made me, uh, which only expanded my confusion. Great. <laughs> in a good way. Yeah. You saw that your definitions were, were limited in a way you didn't realize, or... Well, in the way it's taught to us, yes. that 
consciousness arises with phenomena yeah. and passes away. It's connected to the six senses, and it's one of the five aggregates. And I just wrote a couple of things. I just wrote down here, and it says that Buddha was then talking about a consciousness that is signless, boundless, and all-luminous, right. primordial, transcendent, infinite, and limitless. Yeah. But he didn't speak about that very much. And I well, was wondering, how does that... Uh, we don't get it much, because he was pointing to... Uh, because his methodology was non-grasping. Mm-hmm. And I think people love to grasp the ultimate, but you can't really grasp it. So what the, what the methodology of Theravada Buddhism yeah. is, is you kind of point to what it's not. It's not this, it's not this, it's neti neti. The problem with that is because the realization of the unconditioned isn't emphasized, uh, you can you can just be in a constant negation of everything, but if you think of and you think it through, well, why then? Why do I want to negate everything? And why? It's not a negation. It's just don't look there. That's not the right place. But there is a place, and that gets missed very often. And so Buddhism ends up being a kind of um, readjustment of psychology or lifestyle, and you, you miss the transcendent. The reason the Buddha was teaching is because of his realization, the unconditioned. Whereas Ajahn Sumedho very much has always emphasized that, and he called his monastery Amaravati, the realm of the deathless. So all that language, and when you put it as consciousness, that is more approachable to Westerners than uh, the the unconditioned. But then you get like a conflict, it seems, with the five khandhas, and people get confused. And there's the question, how is it not a conflict? Because it's, it's not a word that's used just in one way. In, 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 in Western language, um, we, we have consciousness and then we have a definition of consciousness, right? In whatever way you define it, and that's kind of difficult now to get there. But when you ask Amarasiri, the language that's used around this larger uh, sense of what consciousness is, they understand it easily because they have it in their language. So when I when I ask him, you know, does your family use ideas like the unconditioned, the uncreated? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, they're very yeah. And he can see the difference in the texts between the use of those two modes. And but we only have one word, consciousness. So we're stuck. You know, we we think that our language is somehow accurate, but our language doesn't really have very much uh, uh, ways of approaching the the. The unconditioned say we don't have that kind of language. So, because we have theistic language, which is dualistic. If you look at mystical traditions, sure, you'll find some references to God, which are close to the Far Eastern re- reflections on the unconditioned, right? But not much. So, our language doesn't even lend itself to that realization. But we do suffer. And, and the teaching is about the end of suffering. But if you think the end of suffering is just psychological comfort, then you're just trying to re- rearrange the khandhas. But if you realize it's not about that, it's about liberation from the khandhas, mm-hmm. you've got a whole different program. And that's awareness. Awareness of change. Right? Mm-hmm. So the word consciousness is very difficult. You, know, you and I have maybe different perspectives on it and so on. <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't have no perspective anymore. On now. <laughs> but you know, the, there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, the unformed, the deathless, the island, peace, the harbor, nibbana, and then that way of de- defining consciousness, right? There's that, that, all that language is there. Yeah, yeah. And the way I've been taught, that was always central, although it's not as much talked about as maybe like don't attach, don't grasp. But to me, without that language, uh, there would be no reason for not attaching. Why not just have as much fun as possible? Mm. Right? And why not just make this a, a realm of maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain? Well, because that won't get, that, you know, there's something more profound possible. If, you, if you're not given that, then you can get very uh, limited. Well, in, in a sense, I don't feel <laughs> I was given that. Uh-huh. I mean, the way I've been taught 
and basically, I think the way we did, did seem to teach in the West, in my experience, is sense consciousness is very, um, it's just sense consciousness, it's just one of the khandas. Right. Consciousness arises and passes away with ever-changing conditions, it's just one of the khandas. Now that's a very different path, if you were to no. that teaching than the one that No, no, had. that's a part of the path. All right, maybe a part of the path. Yeah, because what that's pointing to is don't attach to sense consciousness. Right? Yeah. And then this other way, there is the unconditioned, or the, the, the way that Vinyana has talked about there. I don't, I don't use that so much. I use like uncreated, unconditioned, or the knowing, or awareness. Yeah. Right? So, so um, what, what hasn't been emphasized is transcendent realization. I guess. I don't know. My teachers have always emphasized it. Ajahn Chah is always talking about going beyond happiness and unhappiness. Going beyond it, right? Yeah. There is a state of peace and so on. Ajahn Sumedho has always emphasized it. So I've always, I've just lived in that kind of a medium. But what is, you know, when, when you practice, what, what was the goal of the practice? Well, I'm kind of wondering what kind of practice now but, but when, but when, if we go back, when you were taught, what was the goal of the practice? Well, certainly it would be shifting out of thinking into awareness, awareness of the arising and passing away of phenomena. And did anyone speak about that awareness? Not enough. So the reference was always the object, yeah. not grasping the object, but the very state of non-grasping is talked about as Nibbana. Ajahn Chah, you read, he's always saying that, right? Yeah. So whereas, uh, whereas in Thailand, or Ajahn Sumedho, you say, now is the knowing, or the Thais would say, it's like this. And that suchness statement uh, is where, where transcendence is realized from that statement. Mm-hmm. rather than it just being a kind of conclusion, yeah, it's, it's just sense consciousness. And you're still thinking, that's, that's, that's not sense consciousness. So the way I've been taught is, is there, you know, the, the luminosity of the mind is from that knowing, from non-grasping, freedom of the mind through non-grasping. Mm-hmm. So I guess what's been emphasized is non-grasping, but not the result of non-grasping, which is, which is this luminosity, clarity, expansiveness. Maybe, yeah. Mm. So, so I guess you quite, what, what, you know, why, why do you do this? <laughs> why, why do you practice in this way? Or like, what's the deal for you? For me, it was always the realization of the unconditioned. And that's how I approached it, like, before I became a monk from, you know, from India and so on. Mm. It's good. It, 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 I, mean, it's, I mean, that very funny space. Yeah. Right now. But, but. Um, Leaving behind what I thought I knew to exploring. Allow yourself not to know and be the knowing of not knowing. Yeah. And, 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 and I would say, realize that that very knowing, not intellectual, but that very sense of presence, is the goal. Which is again, it, it, it just, just, just trust that. I'd say trust that. It's a somewhat pleasant feeling. Should be, should be. It's very silent. I mean, right now. Yeah. And that's it. Trust in that. And when you doubt... Like, I, like I want to strive for ideas and answers exactly, to questions yeah. and conclusions, but for some reason I'm resistant to do that. I, I don't want to do that now. That's wise. I just... I would say that's wise. You've done that enough. <laughs> We've all done that enough, and trust in in the silence, and then the mind. You, you'll see the mind like in that silence. The mind is kind of it's right, but that now you're getting to the more fundamental feeling of becoming. Now it's not verbalized. It's like like, I, like an energy. I feel somehow unburdened. <laughs> unburdened with. 
Yeah. But it's still letting go, which is so amazing. Yeah. It's not, but it's not that anything I had to let go. I just noticed. Yeah, it, the, the letting go, letting be, realizing it's like this, suchness, you know, all this language is actually uh, pointing to just one thing. And then it's very simple. It's, there's no becoming in that. It's just kind of more like remembering, re recollecting. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's the silence again. Yeah. Yeah. And then... I thought it was very interesting last time when you would ask yourself, when am I? Yes, <laughs> do all these things. Because <laughs> I have a feeling that's part, maybe that's a little catalyst for what we're talking about, yeah. just asking when am I? And I was kind of as curious as opposed to who am I or where am I? They're all... Or they're, what am I? I thought that was just a yeah. curious expression. Because sense of I arises in time and related to time. You know, history, what I'm going to do, when I will be. And I'm going to go, when? And then it's silent. So the sense, the sense of self is something that arises and ceases. It's not permanent. Yeah, so it's just um, tricks of the trade, I think. Because <laughs> this, is, this is like, you know, they talk about instant enlightenment and gradual path. And both are important, but the kind of instantaneous enlightenment is, is this, oh yeah, I get it. And then you still have the work of habit that you, you're always processing and, and struggling with. But it's, it's, then, it's, then it's a matter of faith and trust. And a matter of lying, lying thinking aside. Yeah. It's yeah. Lying aside. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Listening, being, and then you can then you can use thought, you know, because you know you realize its limits. Say so you want to plant uh, a dharma course somewhere, you do that. You plan a trip, you do that. But you also have the silence. So would you say in in your practice you are always aiming aiming or moving towards silence? Always towards awakening. You know, just the awakened mind. And then within that, I can think. So, but the thing, you know, there's the, choo the choosing of thought rather than thought dominating. So that the tendency of thought to dominate consciousness is habit. Yeah. Right? And as you keep letting go of that, oh, and you see that the habit is driven by emotion, history, you know, all manner of stuff, and you awaken to that, then the awakening gets stronger. But then if thought, is, thought then can be interjected as a contemplative thing, when am I? Uh, it can be used that way. Uh, or you can not go to it. Or you can use it analytically for other worldly purposes like building furniture or, or baking a cake or making a shopping list or something like that. And that's its place, isn't it? And do you sort of find yourself in that thinking and doing and talking and then reminding yourself to come back to the awakening? Yeah, the more you do that, the more you like it, the more you find it's your refuge, the more you appreciate it, the more you, you um, <coughs> go there in your meditation. Right? The more you abide as that, and the more you do that, it just becomes um, second nature. And you hear the sound of silence more, and there's more space. And then within that, you see how the sense of self is arising as worry, as annoyance, as whatever. And so that, that silence also becomes the, the kind of uh, perspective, the strengthening of perspective of liberation. Because now you know where clarity lies, and the movement towards becoming or self, you know, oh, there it is. Just know quicker, uh, and but there's nothing you have to do about it. You just don't go there. You just you don't go where to the sense of self creation. Oh, I see. So maybe you're feeling annoyed because so really when you notice you're there, it's really just a relaxing. That's it. You're there. You're just I think. relaxing. Yeah. Um, and the relaxing can also require some patience, reminding, like let's say I, I, if I have a habit of 
of, of, of annoyance maybe and, and uh, then the conditions are such that annoyance comes up I know annoyance oh yeah and it comes up oh yeah annoyance comes up oh annoyance so there's a kind of diligence in the awakening because you know that's the condition that will will tend to uh, dominate if you if you are heedless if you just go with thinking so there is uh, there is effort but it's just the effort of reminding uh, or you know, putting in language. Sometimes the language is to be strong. Don't 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 go there. <laughs> or sometimes this, you don't have to say anything, right? So it kind of depends on the condition. But you get you just get really good at, at, at navigating all that stuff because it's so simple. The awakening is so simple. So the navigation becomes a returning to your, you know, to that. Mm. Whereas before, you kind of, like, before you get it, you're always trying to navigate, the, get the khandhas right, which is endlessly complex. Khandhas are so complex. Now you're not trying to negotiate And they're deliberately taught that way. I mean, they're taught that way, and, 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 and yeah, and, and you don't have to go, you don't have to do all that anymore. You know, because that's what you try to do. You try to, you know, sub-analyze and sub-analyze and sub-analyze. But it's just, in the wrong direction. Uh, yeah, the, you see, what's the point? I mean, the whole point of describing the kindness as unsatisfactory, so you let go. That's all. Once you get that, <laughs> you don't have to worry about it too much. Even if you can't do the book definitions. So I might flunk a, a, an exam on Buddhism because I don't remember half the concepts that I used to know. But I know what the awakened mind is. Mm. And it's that's kind of. Maybe maybe I'm becoming a simpleton or something, <laughs> in a good sense. <clears throat> so when, when you when you see someone who has a really complex analytical understanding of of the text, it is pretty wow, right? And then you can feel like if you're a teacher, you can feel very intimidated by that. Wow, I can't do that. I hope they don't ask me. <laughs> so I get that right. Oh God, don't ask me a poly question. But it, but then I just know oh yeah this is this is a feeling of uh, insecurity say are you there I used to have that in New Zealand like there was had a lot of Sri Lankan daikas who were really some of them were were well versed in Pali and there was one guy who used to always kind of wind me up with these impossible questions and I and I felt I had to answer them and then I thought well I don't know so I just said well, I don't know. Look it up in the book. <laughs> and there was incredible freedom. Well, that's that freedom that on the other long boat is you were talking about. Yeah, before. yeah, exactly. <laughs> I don't think you did the question. Yeah, like Lampoli, yeah. So that, that you, you, you kind of get the correct perspective on, on, on intellect. If you're a professor of Buddhism like Ajahn Pavra was, well, then you have. You know, your your bread and butter is to know concepts and history, and where if you're a philologist or something like that, then sure, that's where that comes into play. So if you're like a great scholar like Bhikkhu Bodhi, it's a huge resource for us because he's mm -hmm. got an encyclopedic mind, he studied, and he lays it out for us to look at it in different ways. So those are beautiful, beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And then you're you 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 know some people some people need a really detailed roadmap. Right? And they gotta see all, all of it. And some people just need a sign, go that way. <laughs> and both are, you know, both have validity, both have a way. But it does seem to make sense that a modern, our modern Western minds need to make this thing a lot more complicated. They, we do. That needs to be. But so did the Abhidhamma. Yeah. You know, the Abhidhamma is it's not canonical. It was written well after the, uh, right. the first council, or whatever councils we had, and um, terribly complex. So, it, you know, humans have been doing that for a long, long time. And intellectuals can be very... Uh, like intellectuals write stuff. The forest monks never wrote, any, wrote anything. Mm -hmm. So the teachings of Ajahn Chah, if there were no ways of recording, if we didn't have such huge populations, his teaching would have died in the forest. Yeah. We'd never know it. Right, so you think back to, to, to the to the time of the Buddha. How many great Ajahn Chahs have there been? We have no idea where they were, but the intellectuals in the universities who had scribes, right, 
and who had that intellectual capacity and could make commentary, that survived. Okay? So that there's a kind of bias towards that, except now. And now you get that the experiences of non, non-writers, non say, Ajahn, uh, of non-writers, like Ajahn Chah. Yeah. You know, you, you're starting to get, you, you're getting the oral tradition in writing, which is interesting. You never had the oral tradition like that before. So, you, like all the books that we have, none of us are writers, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a good editor. And, and in a totally different environment. Yeah. With a completely different mindset. Yeah. Because my, my training has been oral tradition, it hasn't been through books. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not stupid, I do read, but, but you know, the instructions in Ajahn Sumedha was given me specifically to my needs rather than a, like a scriptural package which I have to pick out. You know, you just, just try this, do this, I don't know. That's been incredibly valuable. Like a coach, right? Or a, or a, a guild master, a craft master, that kind of thing. I mean, we're lucky. You know, it's not, the way you're talking now does not sound unlike, uh, you know, uh, Ramana Maharshi. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I'll drink that. <laughs> it's Advaita Vedanta in a sense, whereas many of us seem to. I think Advaita is. Say, oh no, it's very different from that. I don't think so. I think the 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 value of Advaita. You have many Advaita teachers, right? Many flavors of Advaita. So you know, some I don't know, not to make judgments, but I think. Where Advaita is very, very helpful to Theravada is that it emphasizes the unconditioned. Whereas Theravada emphasizes the letting go of conditions. Right? But then sometimes because it emphasizes the letting go of conditions, it doesn't say, well, why are you letting go of conditions? Because there's the unconditioned. There is this possibility. We forget that. And and, and so, you know, like quite often, the, the first and second noble truths are taught, but not the third. You know, there is suffering and a cause, not the end of suffering, right? right. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas, whereas Advaita is saying, yeah, there is this end of suffering, it's, and it's this, right? So I think, I think they can really help each other. If, if, what, the, if the Advaita comes from an authentic, realized being. And what can Theravada offer Advaita? Structure, mm-hmm. form, uh, uh, practice. endurance, practice, um, time. Because mm-hmm. the Advaita thing is timeless, right? But it gives you no form or structure. Whereas Theravada yeah. says, no, no, this is going to take you some time. E- each moment of awakening is, is, is beyond time. <laughs> mm-hmm. But you're going, to have to, you're going to have to endure these things. You have to build a lifestyle. You need to live morally. No, you can't smoke marijuana even though it's legal in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> or whatever. Right? So, so it'll, it'll, give you, it'll give you a vehicle. Whereas Advaita doesn't give you a vehicle. So Advaita is usually, its strength has been through its gurus. Right? So the, the kind of guru-chela relationship is very, very strong with Sri Raman and so on. Mm. But it doesn't give you a, a path or, or a whole uh, like social structure or rituals, mm. uh, mm. so much. That kind of, it's, so it's a vehicle that Theravada offers. And I've certainly experienced it that way. <clears throat> so, but I, I found it too to be very... So, like, if you were a fundamentalist Theravada, Vadin, mm-hmm. uh, then you'd say there can be no enlightenment outside of Theravada. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. To me, that's, that's uh, why I don't believe it, because I think Sri Ramana was a realized being. I don't know. I might be wrong. But certainly his life was exemplary. His teaching was consistent. Mm-hmm. He seemed to help scores and scores and thousands and thousands of people. Mm-hmm. So to dismiss that and say, oh, it was just fourth jhana or something like that, to me, is, is uh, seems very conceited. To what I know for sure is that I don't know, but you know, people I meet that have been affected by that, I can talk with them in this way very easily. Mm-hmm. Now is the knowing, Ajahn Samedo, right? So I have no problem with that. <clears throat> And if someone says to me, well, you know, he wasn't enlightened, I said, fine. You know, whatever you think. Mm-hmm. My, my path isn't dependent on my whether, what, whatever he did. So you can say to me, the Buddha wasn't enlightened. I said, fine. It doesn't matter to me. 
because mm. I'm not, you know, that, that's just a convention, that kind of thing. I, I mean, I do think the Buddha was an amazing being in what he set up and still persists. Mm. Amazing, amazing being. Huh? Bus. <laughs> There's not much to say after it, is there? I got a new sharpening jig. A new? Uh, a jig to sharpen oh, yeah? blades. Wow. <laughs> I was so happy today. <laughs> Very nice. What are you working on right now in the shop? Well, I, I'm sort of finished for the year because I'll be on the road soon. Mm. But I'm going to do a really ambitious project next year. I want to build an uh, armoire or a wardrobe. It's a really, a really big piece where I have to do a lot of stuff I don't know how to do. So I'm going to push the envelope, mm. and I learned a lot that way. It takes something on which is crazy, and then I <laughs> ruined a lot of wood. <laughs> but then, then, then I guess I push it, and I learn a lot. Mm. So there's certain things I I want to learn next year. Mm. I really enjoy that. Where are you traveling to? Oh my gosh. Uh, Singapore, New Zealand, mm -hmm. Thailand, Penang, KL, Singapore, <coughs> Thailand, Ottawa. In, in two and a half months. I, the whole journey is quite long this time. Yeah. Otherwise I'd be doing furniture to Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. A lot of, well, going back to New Zealand, I haven't been there for a long time. Mm. So I have some very good friends who are in their 80s, <coughs> and I want to see them. We all joke, we say, you know, we're all on departure lounge, so we better get together before <laughs> one of us departs. <coughs> and then I have a retreat in, a bit of teaching in Singapore, and there's an Ajahn Chah gathering in KL, a bit of teaching in Penang, and then a retreat in, uh, a one-week retreat in Mehong Son, in, uh, up on, by the Burmese border, northern Thailand, and then a retreat in Pak Chong, north of Bangkok. And then the Ajahn Chah gathering, and then back. And then, and then Ajahn Pasano invited me to visit, with his mother, to visit Hawaii in February. So I said, okay. <laughs> Ten days. Do you offer any retreats? In these parts? Like I do a September retreat in Arnprior. Where is that? In Arnprior, near Ottawa. Uh -huh. I do that every September. Mm -hmm. you go to head to the U.S. at all? Uh, no. I go to Temple. Yeah. Yeah, but mm -hmm. I don't do, do retreats there. Mm -hmm. And I teach a retreat in Peterborough mm -hmm. every, usually November. Mm -hmm. anyway, yeah, November, yeah. So the one here in September, one there in November. And then I'm in Asia, like I usually teach like December or January or something in Asia. And then in Toronto I go down for two days, and that's about it I think. Not so much. The traveling is more like invitations in groups. Yeah. I used to teach a lot of retreats, not so much now. But Kimiko is starting to teach, which is great. I've been encouraging him. Wow. Yeah, the Empire retreat was quite nice. It's, it's one of those retreats where we all know each other. So there's some people there who have been practicing as long as I have. And we've been practicing together for 20 years, so it's kind of a reunion. I'm very silent, because everyone just gets into it, in a beautiful place. Yeah, it's very nice. 
Mehong Son, that'll be new for me up there. I've never been up there. That's the northern Thailand? It's due, yeah, due west of uh, Chiang Mai on the Burmese border. There's a monk up there who has, uh, who's Malaysian actually, who has, uh, he does a lot of social work, so he, he runs an orphanage, or the monastery sponsors an orphanage. And I guess there's a retreat center there too. So the uh, Singapore people support him, and then they go up and do retreats. Up. This is my first time, but they do retreats there. And they'll translate for you? And they're all English-speaking. English oh, they're from Singapore. Yeah, so. All Chinese backgrounds. Really bright, bright people who have a lot of faith. Tremendous amount of faith. They're an organization that does... There quite a few of them, I think, are retired professionals, and they do philanthropic work. They have an org, like a double kind of organization. One organizes retreats for their friend, the Dharma group, one of the Dharma groups in Singapore, and then the sister organization that they're also involved in uh, organizes the quite often the building of schools in Laos, and I guess this orphanage is sort of, sort of to that. So they're delightful people. And, very competent and hardworking. Mm. Uh, a variety of folk I know. Mm.